Welcome to Fuji Love. This is the show that is all about the Fujifilm X-Series and GFX cameras, but more importantly, it's about the photographers who love to use them. I'm Mark Sadowski, and this show is brought to you by Fuji Love Magazine. For the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm X-Series and GFX, whether it's news, interviews, and so much more, head on over to fujilove.com. Subscribe today. And now, on with the show. We drove through uh, New Jersey and like I, I got yelled at by a gas station attendant because you got um, out. You tried to. Yeah, I, I tried to pump my own gas. It I'll, was... I'll, I'll... <laughs> like I grew up I grew up in the South, too, where like I, I was never near a place that did the, the full service stuff. Yeah. And uh, having now gotten used to it, uh, I'll be honest, I kind of love it. It's pretty great. Because it's not like you, it's not like it's an extra service that you tip them. It's just, that's their job and that's what they do. Right. Yeah. Uh, it was just like, I think like a thing they put, put into protections years and years ago to not get rid of the jobs. Right. Right. And it's, it's kind of factored into the cost of, of, of everything and not getting out of your car to fill up your gas when it is snowing and freezing cold outside. I'll be honest, kind of awesome. <laughs> But it was really weird because I'm trying to find a convenience store place to uh, to pull over to get gas. I'm like, why? Why are the? Why can't I find it? <laughs> it's yeah. that that combination is, is such a such an icon here in uh, here in New England that not seeing it in New Jersey threw me off a bit. And, and it, it was it was a throwback to uh, my childhood because everything is you know, little garages here and there. Yeah, 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 of course. Oh, it was so much fun. Yeah, I was, I had driven over to, to mass. Um, I don't know, a couple years, uh, a couple months ago, I had to drive up uh, as a designer that I've used some, had some stuff made for me before. Her name is Lori Sun. She's based in Massachusetts. And, uh, and it was just a, one piece in particular that I had made. It was a kind of a bit of a, of a structured thing and just, couldn't ship it was too big to ship so i had to go drive and pick it up yeah and uh it was it was it was nice going over there i hadn't, I hadn't been over there in, in years my my mom's family grew up in massachusetts they're uh methuen oh yeah i'm is, right it's where my mom it's where my mom's family's from yeah yep so so i still have a lot of relatives that live in methuen and uh cool. and it's just i don't know it's 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 nice to get over there they have a good movie theater <laughs> <laughs> I've not been long enough. I'm sure that's true. Yeah, you 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 don't have remotely close to the accent they do. This is the uh, hardcore. Uh, you know, yeah, they're the, they're, the, they're the real deep, real traditional. It it will come out if I'm yelling at traffic. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but I've uh, I, I've worked hard to try to get rid of it. At least um, it's easier because. I come from a Polish, uh, Polish household that, so if I speaking of Polish, the, the new England accent diminishes more sure. and more. And, uh, so I have to keep that healthy balance to, uh, have at least a semblance of a radio voice. Uh, I just need to get rid of the stutter and I think I'll be all set. <laughs> well, you, got a great, you got a great one. It's, it's got a good resonance to it. It's got a good timbre. Thanks, man. I wish the one-star reviews would uh, see it that way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but my 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 mom, like my mom, like her family, like a lot of her family still lives up there because it's a big family. You know, so they they left to come to they went they moved to Florida when she was uh you know a teenager, but, but yeah, because of the ages of every you know some some of them stayed up there, some of them went back up there, and so like there's a lot of family up there, and, you know, a lot of those those big Catholic families. Um, she's like one of 11 and, you know, she's, she's been down in Florida for honestly, probably 40 something years, but it still comes out. You know, she, she hangs around, she hangs around her family. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I was, I was looking up in the attic and, and I, and I found my old rockin' horse and you're like, well, you're, you're what? You're like, my rockin' horse. My rockin' horse. You're what? You're, you're a rocking horse. Oh, oh, you're, you're rockin' horse. For me, it'll be, uh, if I, if I say, uh, water. Uh, that Order. that'll be the one that Water. triggers Water. Water. Um, the the funny thing is that I actually did pack my car in Harvard Yard. <laughs> well, was, uh, well, you were just you were committing hard to the stereotype. I technically have packed my car. <laughs> it was uh, it was a very interesting wedding that that day. That's uh, so funny. Anyway, I, mean, I am cut off the bucket list. <laughs> totally. Uh, I am talking to Chris Knight. He is an amazing portrait photographer. Uh, you are an author and you are an ex-creator for Fujifilm. Chris, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I have to say, just looking over your work, your portraiture, uh, portrait work is just incredible. You oh, have thank you. this great way of uh, ju- just making your lighting emphasize your uh, your person that you're photographing. Uh, your settings are absolutely stellar. Your choice of using uh, anamorphic lenses in some of them uh where where you're elongating the the portrait work i mean it it is by far the most unique portrait work i've seen uh compared to compared to others and oh, it's very, I, very sweet thank you so much <laughs> i got to ask you um as of right now whoa i'm curious what you're using for camera gear sure um my main body is the GFX uh, 100S. I have a 100 as a backup, but yep. but usually I'm shooting the 100S. Uh, I just, you know, in terms of image quality between the two, they're they're pretty identical. Um and I just I like the form factor, the smaller. I think I think it's a little bit uh, my my I always think that it's a little snappier, but I think it's the same processing engine. So, um, yeah. I just I I like it being the smaller smaller little body to tug around. It's 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 a great 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 body. Cool. And and then and then a handful of different kinds of lenses of of all different sorts. All different flavors. <laughs> all different flavors, yeah. Uh what brought you into uh the 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 Fujifilm space? Uh what what was it about the medium format that uh grabbed your attention? Yeah, so it, it goes back it goes back several years. Um my last to 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 age to age myself a little bit. My last full frame camera that I had used for myself that was my normal working camera was a five Canon five D Mark II. 
That was the last yeah. full frame camera I had to kind of date myself a little bit. <laughs> and uh, around the end of its shelf life, and I, I did have it to be fair a, a little longer in the tooth than it probably deserved to be, but it was it was a great camera, and it was you know a lot of people's workhorse for many many years. And uh, I had gotten used to using a little bit like the Hasselblad medium format. I was kind of like obsessed with the, the image quality of it and, and what, what the, the house has digitals were doing and stuff. And, and, and I liked them and I was really looking to make the move to it and ended up going to Pentax at the time, which was a bit more of a budget, a uh, budget medium format. And so I had shot on the six, four, five Z for, for years. And, and actually I really loved the camera. It was a great camera um, produced really beautiful images um, you know, it was obviously a little slow and cumbersome to use, but, but it was a really great camera. Um, but it's tethering was, was incredibly weak. And, uh, when it started to get to the end of its, its usable shelf life, they, they kind of like, were like, well, we don't, we think mirrorless cameras are a fad and, and we don't believe it's the future. And I go, oh, these guys don't really have a clue. They they really don't understand what this space needs to be. And it was right around that time that Fuji had come out with the 50S and the 50R. Yes. And and I took a really good hard look at it. And I had used the camera. I had a, I had a friend of mine who had it. And he was an ambassador for Fuji um, in Germany. And he goes, hey, yeah, here's here's my camera. Take a look at it. Give it a, give it a use and, and, and see see what you think. And I use it and I go, oh, this operates just like a DSLR and it tethers and it's quick and snappy and gives you a lot of the bells and whistles that that mirrorless was giving you at the time. And it, it had a lot of great um, technical step ups over like your hazies, like your your true focus and your single point. And it just really operated like like a slower DSLR. Yep. And and the fact that you could use it as part of a normal workflow was just huge hugely helpful and then it was you know very reasonably priced compared to its you know everything it was up against and once i got into that system i was just hooked ever since uh, i had had uh my first mirrorless camera was an xt1 which i had bought years before and had loved it i basically went in to the store to buy like a sony mirrorless and it was in the early yep. days of sony mirrorless and i walked out with a fuji and <laughs> You know, it was it was kind of the first time where I go, oh, okay, this is this is like I it's 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 a it's a it's a very, you know, I know this is like a Fuji podcast, so I can kind of kind of gush over it in detail. But it was it was, and I don't I you know I'm not usually one to to gush on 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 the tools, but but it was just it, it it's a very user friendly experience of a camera whereas for me i think the sony tried to do a lot of different different new things they try to do things its own way and i just wasn't used to those things and i think if you started on a sony you'd get used to it and it wouldn't be anything but i was very comfortable operating a camera in a way that i was expecting to use a camera and the fuji was very intuitively designed right the xt1 was and it yeah. just felt very easy and fun to use and i think that sort of an approach extends through you know every camera at least that i've used from fuji like i think one of my most fun cameras to use currently that's a that's a digital camera is like the x100 series because it, it's just such a joy to use of a camera it's it's fun to use it's not a work camera it's just a fun camera right and i think 
I think nowadays there are just so there there are really no hardly any uh, digital cameras that are fun. You know, if we look back to the film days of things, you'd have specialty cameras, you'd have your X pans, and you'd have your um, you know your your Mamiya's sevens, which was like a medium format rangefinder, and you can have all these different cameras do their own unique things, and now they can just all do everything, and so nothing really has that. It's it's hard to find a camera that has that that spark of joy in it because it does the specific thing, yep. and it's just it's 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 so well designed around the specific thing, and I think the X100, the reason why it gets such good responses and why everybody gushes over it is because it, it is that thing and it's just so fun, you know. And I think I think it lets it lets photographers have that joy of taking a picture versus it being a utility. Yes, that's that's something that I think that Fuji does really well in so much as like their cameras are not entirely designed by engineers. They're also maybe battle tested or or thoughtfully they have thoughtful input from people who understand photography and understand what the needs are of a photographer would be using that camera. And I think they make really good, thoughtful decisions around that a lot of the times. I would agree with that. That that has been uh, their hallmark is. Yeah. uh, get the response of the the community and uh, incorporate that into their science, which has been just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, uh, and, and 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 not to take anything away from like this is not like a let me bash other 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 cameras. Like I think most cameras today are incredibly capable, technologically speaking. Like when we compare differences, we're splitting hairs. They're all capable of taking. Really yeah. good image quality and, and and making a good image. And so it just kind of boils down to what's your preferred way to use it. You know, right. I think in a lot of ways. And I and I think that that's that's what speaks to me about it is is I just I really enjoy uh the usability of it. You are a, a, any camera is going to it, it is awesome nowadays. Yeah, of you course. Have... Like by any camera in the last five years, they're all good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the way it's built determines if it's, if, if the tool that you're using feels more part of you than others. And in right. this particular case, we're just celebrating the Fuji film flavor. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and then, of course, we'll 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 take a nibble at Sony every now and then. But we can't forget that they're still making our sensors, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like they no, I mean they're, they're, they make great tech. Of like, course, like, they do. Yeah. Like it's it's a very well engineered uh, thing. It's just uh, you know uh, questionable I, choices when it comes to how those <laughs> things get implemented into the system. That's all. Yeah, every now and then, I like to uh, I, I, they, they, if. I, I like to consider it as a healthy rivalry. It kind of like yeah. Coke and Pepsi, Canon yeah. and Nikon back in the day. And uh right, right, right. right. Yeah, it's it, it's a lot of fun. Uh I gotta ask, how how did uh, we're kind of working backwards here? How did uh Fujifilm uh get in touch with you or or did you get in touch with Fujifilm? Uh, when it came to your ex-creator status, how did that relationship form, and what what is that meant? Uh, what is that meant to you as a photographer uh, so far? Uh, it's it it's been a great it's been a great honor. Uh, it really has. Um, I had known somebody who 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 worked 
uh, with Fuji for uh, a few years. Um, it's a guy named uh, Jan Gonzalez, who uh, is based in the uh, Philippines and very lovely guy. Um, we have a little bit of a crossover in kind of some of the stuff that we do. And um, we'd gotten friendly over the years and he was uh, visiting New York and we were just kind of hanging out and, and, and chatting a bit and catching up. And he was like, oh, you should be working with Fuji. Like, let me let me make that introduction. And so he had uh, made an introduction uh, to somebody there uh, on, on my behalf, which was incredibly generous of him. And um, we the the person that that, that we became I mean, was introduced to became friendly with and uh, he had given me a couple of things early early on years and years ago to create content for them. Um, it was the launch of some products and stuff, and every time they kind of every once in a while they'd come to me with a little bit of a of a thing here or there. Hey, we're launching this. We have a collaboration with with Profoto to launch this new product. Can you make some images? And and what's a lot of what's what's a really great a, a really really amazing thing that Fuji has done. Anytime I've had these these jobs come through for them is they are incredibly generous with the scope of the project, like the, the premise of the project, right? Yeah. They, they rarely go, Hey, we need you to do X, Y, Z. It's here's the lens. Like, you know what you can't do, like, you know, obviously, but like go nuts, do, do something that is fun and creative for you. And I actually, I, I, that sort of a thing rarely happens in in marketing content in in other jobs. You know, you sometimes you just come in and you have to do what they want to do and do a nice job of it. But you know, you're not necessarily being creative. You're you're almost you're fulfilling the need right for the product. Right, and they're not always creative or, or whatever. You, you work within the box. Whereas this is is way more open ended, and it's kind of just like you know, go do something cool. Like we want cool, fun, creative, attention grabbing images. We trust you as the creative to do that. And you know, it's it's sometimes a little bit more challenging to come up with something, but we we just kept you know, I, I always I always use that as a way to kind of almost fun projects that I wanted to do. So it's like, all right, well, we have a little bit more of a budget than I might spend on my own work, so. What can I do with this? What can I make that becomes a, a a cool showpiece of of what I can do and the images that I can make? And it it was always really fun. And each time it got a little bit bigger. It just kept getting it kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, like we had done, I did the launch of the eighty mil where we had done some really cool stuff in in Times Square. Um, it was a really unusual. almost surreal shoot because it was during pandemic and obviously New York was pretty shut down. Yeah. And I wanted to do this kind of almost vintagey theater theater date kind of it was like mm -hmm. a, a bit of a, of a Gordon parks inspired. Like if you go look at his old um, like 1960s, New York photography in the theater district, like that was kind of where I was drawing a lot of inspiration from. And yeah, uh, I went and I shot like on the street and under the marquee of, I was the Richard Rogers theater in New York. And it was, you know, a normal day of the week in the evening. It wasn't late, you know, seven, eight o'clock, but it was, it's, it's the theater where Hamilton is. 
and the lights were on, but nobody was home. And you got to have these really cool, uh, romantic, uh, very old New York kinds of images because it just wasn't flooded with people. And like we're just walking down the middle of the street in the theater district and it's just empty. And it was a really, really cool thing to do, you know. That's um, amazing. So we did that. We did another one that was uh, a collaboration with Profoto where I was shooting with the A1s, the little the little lights. And we did like a, like a close encounter of Stranger Things with these tentacle monsters. And it was all practical. So like I made these tentacles out of pool noodles and I made the backdrop <laughs> out of printed paper. And it was just like an exercise in doing fantastical concepts at a, at a low budget, you know, and we kept it really cheap. Um, to kind of show, hey, you can do this kind of stuff on a low budget and it's not heavy composite kind of a thing. Yeah. And and then they go, hey, well, we're thinking about expanding and doing this bigger thing and doing this video series. What would that video series look like for you? And that was where the the cinematic images, the one with the anamorphic lens and that whole build kind of came to be. And I, I basically just pitched uh, a series of videos and, and what that would look like. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, shot it put it together and and that was that was the last big project i worked on with him that's a great very series anybody want to, wanting to check that out uh you could find it on youtube and you could also find it on fujifilm's uh website that four-part series uh i actually don't know they they might have put it on youtube that that might be new um they had it on the website and i'm not sure if they they ended up putting it on youtube did they i think it it, you know what? I didn't even check YouTube, but I just don't want to send people there unknowingly. I'm like, I can't find it. <laughs> it's, 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 I thought they used it as a promotional thing for the website. So it might only be on the Fuji website. Uh, it's it, free. It's, it's free. Yeah. You can go visit it. You don't have to sign up. It's free. Um, it's just that's where they've embedded the content. I, it's definitely on their website. If you, yeah, if you do a search for Fujifilm, uh, ex photographers, uh, it, it'll come up. Uh, I think they're using YouTube as the video. That's why I assumed it was on. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just I didn't I didn't know if you could search for it there. I think you're right. It's just one of those hidden embedded things. Exactly. Um but if it's not there uh, you you'll find it on a Fujifilm site. Uh I I got to ask that cinematic look is very prevalent in your in, in your work. Uh how did that come about? Like do you have uh the 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 world of cinema is that something that influenced your your portraiture or uh was that a, a byproduct of photographing celebrities and uh and, and doing magazine covers and oh no like it was that. it was entirely uh conscious so when i was a kid i wanted to be a movie director i've i've loved movies like obsessively since I was I was really little, I'm like a I'm like a weird uh, pop culture sponge. Oh, like I love absorbing love <laughs> everything in pop culture. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it annoys the crap out of my my partner. Like because it's it's one of the only things that sticks in my head easily, right? Yes. So it's like I'm I'm really bad at meeting people's names, like meeting people remembering names, like in person. I'm, I'm yep. like, I, and I have to. I really try to like like register that. It just doesn't click naturally. But I could tell you people who've been in movies 30 years ago that I've never seen. Yes. It's just, it's a weird thing that's that's in my brain for some. And it's like weird, obscure actors who haven't done stuff in 20 years. It is. Um, 
it's 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 really frustrating. I can't, <laughs> I can't like like break it. So when I was a kid, I wanted to make movies and direct movies, but I grew up in a small town and I, I had no connection to to Hollywood or, or or cinema. And so I just I go, well, maybe I'll go this other route. And I did I did broadcast journalism and I did that for years. And then I got into photography after that, and um, it eventually just came back around to feeling comfortable enough to want to try to mind my own uh, preferences, my own flavors a little bit more in that way and bring it into the work. And I think, you know, if we're able to pull in the things that we love and are passionate about and are excited by, it's always going to make the images that we make better and stronger because we feel more emotionally invested in them, whatever it is. Like you love sports, you bring sports into it. You love dance, you do that. You know, you love fashion, you bring fashion into it. Whatever it is that you like in photography, for, it rewards you to bring in the things you like, right? Yeah. It's this really beautiful amalgamation of, of our passions. And it lets you be passionate about whatever, whatever you want. And, and you can, you can, you can, you can funnel it through the language of photography, right? Which, which I always really loved. And when it came to, you know, the kinds of pictures that I was taking, uh, I, I, I had heard somebody had said this a long time ago and I really liked it. You basically have four years, like you have a, you have a shelf life. Like most, most photographers have a shelf life of like four years, right? In so much as like, if there's one thing you do, and you have a very specific thing you do and you get you find success with that thing you generally have about 4 years before people are tired of it right and and you just kind of fade out of flavor and some people make a ton of money and have find a lot of success in that but generally speaking if you're not evolving constantly evolving you get dismissed forgotten um, looked over, however you want to describe it, right? Yeah. And so I was doing a lot of stuff that looked a certain way, and I felt very tuned into it, and I felt like I had it, uh, you know, under my belt. And you know, for whatever reason, either I was bored of it, or you start to see the same sorts of things that you do, kind of in the in the general consciousness, and you see derivatives or similarities in, in a lot of other people's work, and you're like, all right, well. Uh, I'm kind of done seeing it because I'm just seeing other versions of it out in the world. And it's, it's kind of diluting what I'm doing and, and, and everything else. Not that I'm like inventing it. It's just like the same sorts of similar, the same sorts of elements you're seeing in other people's work over and over again. And I right. go, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, I've moved on. And so basically what it was, was me going, like, I kind of hit on it a little bit. Like I need, I need to get, I love shooting in the studio, but I was just like, I don't want to keep shooting the same thing in the studio over and over and over again. So what can I do? Okay, we'll do environments. Well, what do I like about shooting on location? And what can I do that's different shooting on location? And what kind of images do I want to make? What are the things that excite me, right? What are the things that will uh, lend them to me getting more work in the kind of stuff that I want to do? And so this sort of a thing, the cinematic look was a little bit more of a, of a progression toward that because I think even though there are similar approaches to ways that I do things throughout different jobs and different shoots, it's always a new challenge and it's, it's never the same thing. It never really looks the same unless I'm really doing the exact same thing. It's always going to be a new, a new type of image to make. It's always going to have a different 
flavor, different style, different approach. And so when you have that, it makes it almost impossible to recreate. So you tend to get less bored and you tend to not see the regurgitation of it out in the world as often. And I, 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 that, that I think has kept me with it a little bit longer because it's always changing and the aesthetic is always moving. And the types of images that I make are always different because you could just say, Hey, I'm going to go shoot at a new place. And that presents an entirely different uh, range of inspiration and entirely different uh, range of, of images that you can, you can make. And it's just, I don't know, more fun. Absolutely. You need to be more like Madonna, less like Kid Rock. <laughs> I think I think that's that's probably pretty good advice in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> kind of makes me wonder what Wes Anderson is going to do since everybody and their uncle is trying to copy his style. Yeah, it was it was really fun. Like funny, like I, I had seen he, he kind of got a little uh I think uncomfortable in an interview when somebody asked him like, what do you think of all the, the homages? And he's like, I, I really kind of think it's a bummer if this is what everybody thinks my work is reduced to uh, <laughs> the, 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 the little visual quirks, but I, I, oh, I people are missing fun. it by a mile. Yeah. They, they yeah. don't get it. It's, but, uh... I, but I also think it's really funny that, um, cause he's, he's, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. He's so incredibly particular. Yes. Uh, and, and that's what makes his films so specific. But every time he makes a movie, people are like, this is the most Wes Anderson movie he's ever made. And then he makes the next one. And they're like, no, this is the most Wes Anderson movie. And so I don't know. I just think he kind of keeps going into more and more of his his thing. And and I think his his work is is really special. You know, there's just there's no one else out there who can do that, who does that. I I, I love it. He. I, I'm I'm a late bloomer when it comes to Wes Anderson. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And and what he can do with actors is just incredible. Uh, just from the sheer volume of how many he gets to work with in each. Oh, right. Movie. Yeah. And making everybody look amazing is 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 just just proof that his mind is just something special. And and what I also really love about him and 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 Tarantino as well for the same reason yes. is they both they both love making movies and they love cinema, right? They and love it films. shows so much. And it shows. And so, you know, you've got Wes Anderson who he uses miniatures a lot in his work. And miniatures are a dying art. If you've ever gone on, you know, any one of those YouTube channels, um the the Collider guys who do the breakdowns, the special effects. I love, I love that show. Yes. They're like these special effects artists who go in and do stuff. They they love uh gushing about miniature work because it's it's such a it's it's you cannot replicate the quality of a good miniature compared to CGI. It just looks different, right? Yes. And Wes Anderson is still uses miniatures, but it's, it's a dying art. Like hardly anybody uses miniatures anymore. Cause it's just CGI. Right. And he's like, if I'm going to deal with artificiality, I would rather deal with my, my preferred method of artificiality. I like the older method of artificiality versus the newer one. And I actually, I, I really like that sentiment. And I think it's those, those things. And, and, and Chris Nolan, Christopher Nolan as well, where it's like, I want to do things the older way, because that's the thing that, that speaks to me more about, you know, the language of film that I love. Right. Totally. And 
um, uh, another one that kind of has the same sentiment to kind of bring it bring it into photography uh, is is Vincent Peters, uh, who does these really is one of my favorite photographers. Um, if you've seen my, you know, if you've seen his work, you'd be like, oh yeah, no, clearly he's one of your favorite photographers. Um, he does these really beautiful romantic images, uh, portraits that kind of feels like if you evolved uh, classic Hollywood stuff, like old George Harrell photographs, and you put it into a modern world, that's what it would have become had you kept shooting it for a long time. Yeah. And it definitely hits on the the old the old Hollywood look, but it does it in a, a little bit more of a modern way. But there's also this, this sense of timelessness to it. And everybody kind of looks like they're taken out of a, a film still from like the 1950s. And it's just... It's beautiful, beautiful work. His work is amazing. Like, just yeah. If 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 you are listening and you are unfamiliar, drop everything and just go fall in love with the work of Vincent Peters. His and and so most of his works are black and white. Obviously, he's got some work in color. And I also I teach at at a couple of schools and a lot of the other the other instructors because it you know it has a little bit more of an art lean to it. A lot of the other instructors don't like black and white. They they want all the students to shoot in color because it's a bit more modern and it's a bit more, um, you know, I, I guess current to a lot of the trends of of art. Where you don't see a lot of black and white. And I like black and white. I don't shoot it all the time, but I definitely regularly shoot it. And they're like, well, oh, so and so teacher doesn't like it, and and you have no problem with it. So, like, like, what do you do? I said, well, I said the thing is, is a lot of people look at black and white as a crutch, and they just don't know how to use color. And I think if you're using it in that way, I think it's lazy, and I don't think you necessarily need to. This is to my students. I don't think you necessarily need to use it as just a. I don't. I didn't do a good job here with the color, so I'm 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 restricting it just to make it a little easier. But there is a there's a musicality to good black and white and a beautiful black and white image when it's intended to be black and white and it's shot in a way that resonates as a black and white image is, is amazing and timeless and classic. And, and it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a language of, of the, of the world of photography that is just not spoken as fluently as it used to be. Right. Right. And I had heard, I had heard Vincent, talk about this and he put it in a way that i always credit him but i i use this explanation all the time because i think it's the perfect encapsulation of how i feel about it he goes using color well is great and it can be like listening to a symphony play play a piece and it's rich and it adds a ton of depth and a ton of layers and it's really, really amazing to hear when it's when it's done well. But he goes, when I started out, the earliest photographs I loved were black and white photographs that spoke to me. And for me, a black and white photograph is somebody sitting there playing with a piano. And it's not that one is inherently better than the other. It is just a different, a different musicality. One is big and robust and complex and the other is very stripped down and very simple. Yeah. And I think for um, the kinds of images that he makes, they're very emotional, very singularly romantic. They feel very isolated, very quiet sometimes. Uh, I, I think that that sort of a flavor 
is a really re- is the right is the right thing to to best showcase the feel look of the images that he wants and i think that's when black and white works really well i would agree sometimes that, that is like a great interpretation uh, like yeah. the thing man black and white is there is that intangible quality that everybody has a, an amazing explanation for like this, this, what you just said totally hits the nail on the head, but also other great black and white photographers have a great explanation that also yeah. hits the nail on the head. It is yeah. such a, there's just something that, that, that our minds just grabs onto that. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't describe it uh, as eloquently as the, as you just did. Um, but it's like, it, it does tend to evoke more emotion if it's done properly. Um, and, and iron, anger if it's done improperly yes <laughs> um it, it's just a matter of uh, your, your personal preference and uh and kind of go from there it, it's uh but yeah i totally hear you that that is uh, a, a great explanation for uh how, how to see it um, yeah, I just I think it all boils down to intent. Like, what do you want from the images? Like, not not knowing. Like at the end, go, oh, do I like it in in color, black and white? I think it's it's you're rarely going to find that that one is the thing that that is the right choice for the image if you don't know early on. Like, it's not that it's not going to make it look good or bad. It's just if you really want it to have that that impact, it's yes. it's a choice in the beginning. Right. Right. And one of the reasons why I, I really liked shooting black and white in my earliest days, because I was bad at shooting color. Color is hard to shoot. Well, it is because you have to think about color throughout the entire process, not just at the end. I was like, oh, I like your color grading. I'm like, well, like there's more to color in an image than just the grade. Like you have to think about color in the beginning, middle and end. Right. So to, to really make it work. And so I think for me, when I started getting into trying to get better at color. My earliest uses of color were just like black and white. I was shooting monochrome images and it probably basically like, let me just pick one color and, and hit it over the head, right? Everything's warm, for example. And so my, my entry into, into shooting color was very much based off my aesthetic of black and white. And then I would expand it. Okay. Now we're, 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 we're monochromatic. Now let's open it up a little bit. Let's do some analogous colors. Okay, cool. Now, how can I change it up a little bit? Well, let's play around with complementary colors now. And then you just kind of would like most of the time when I use color, it's two, you know? Yeah. I pick two colors to just kind of dominate the image most of the time. Um, unless it's or or it's you know a very restricted palette or it's it's very simple like uh, using color a lot of times isn't this wildly complicated um, exercise a lot of times it's just like simplify it down and that honestly sometimes makes for a, a much more thoughtful use of color than anything just reduce it down make it make it more similar. Let's go the opposite direction and and talk about some of your other portrait work that's very painterly uh, uh -huh. tell me a little bit more about finding rembrandt 
Okay. Um, so when I came to New York uh, many years ago, um, you know, you you try to appreciate and and make the most of of what your what your city city offers. And uh, one of the things that New York has that's world class, especially, is museums. And the Met is one of the great museums of the world. It's probably the thing that I'd miss the most if I ever if I ever left New York. Yeah, I love I love the Met. It's and 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 it made me love museums and it made like, so whenever I, I travel, I'm like, Oh, what does this city have for, for big pieces and, and museums and, and go out of my way to go try to see, see and experience different, different pieces. So, you know, I knew Rembrandt kind of cursory, you know, early on as this style of lighting, you know, the, the triangle on the face. And that was the recognizable name really for me in in the museum when i when i'd walk around and and i go well why do we find this guy important let me learn about him and it was just like curiosity and then you learn about him and it was interesting and then you go okay well once i see who he is like how did he have relevance in his world and so you learn about his time period and that opens it up to other artists and you're like okay well now i understand that well what about the periods in and around that like why were they different and what did they do and you find different things that respond to you as you start to just wander around and you don't have to look for necessarily the names you recognize when you go to these museums is you just look for work that you like uh, and work that resonates with you and then when you see that you learn about it and you read about it. Like art is a very personal, personal experience. And not everything that you see will always resonate with you. There's there's a lot of artists out in the world that, especially like in terms of, of modern art, that I don't like necessarily. Like I don't I don't like the work, but that's not necessarily always relevant. Sometimes it's the conversation around the work yep. that is the interesting thing. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of artists out there who I go, oh, I don't like the work, but the conversation around what they're creating is actually, it's like as a, as a, as a fun thought experiment. And so, you know, when we take like a humanities class, if we, we don't have an art degree, right. If we take a humanities class in school and they go, oh, well, you have to learn about the Mona Lisa and the Sistine Chapel and, you know, this handful of other things that the world has decided are the great works of art. And they are like, don't get me wrong. But a lot of times they're not necessarily always explained in the most dynamic way, or they don't give you the scope of other other artists to kind of put it up against. Because, you know, art throughout history was always pop art, not pop art, but like modern art. And so it was created by artists who were alive that was about how they would experience different parts of of humanity and and emotion and and trying to funnel it through their work, um. Obviously, the you know varying levels of this, but it, it almost kind of becomes this this time capsule for what the people who were creating art uh, valued, wanted to look at, appreciated, felt like recording uh, at the time. And so, some of it is very very dark and extraordinarily violent even though you might see these really beautiful pieces 
And then you learn about what the the story is behind the piece, and you're like, oh my god, this is so messed up. Yeah, uh, especially you know a lot of the allegorical work and 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 religious texts and stuff. Like some of it's really dark. Um, some of it's dark. So it can be it can be beautiful. It can be um, funny. Like there's a lot of humor in art. A lot of really inappropriate, like kind of dumb humor that gets snuck in, and it's really really fun to look the at those early things. Easter eggs of their time. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. Um, like there's, and it can be just a little, like, here's the, the painter in the back waving, or like, here's just all the different innuendos in this one piece. Um, and it's really fun. And I, I don't think, I think by, by missing out on showing those to people, we, we don't give them the opportunity to, to enjoy it for whatever their reasons. Like, I love a good highbrow, lowbrow, like, let's, let's talk about art, but let's talk about, uh, Let's talk about the stupid dick jokes that we're seeing, you know, in these famous <laughs> paintings. Can I say that? Um, I was about to say it too. <laughs> can I say that? But yeah, but it's true. Like here's a here's a like there's this, there's there's one painting in particular that I always point to. It's it's basically it's a it's a five hundred almost a five hundred year old painting, and the whole thing is just littered with uh, dick and impotence jokes. Like it's the whole thing is just a funny joke. Yeah, and it's hanging in the Met, like in a pristine. Uh, play, like it's it's in like a front and center and you see it and you're like, okay, this is fine. And then you read about it and they're explaining all of this in the description at one of the finest museums in the world about how all of this is just a childish joke. It's just a very sophomoric joke. And it's really funny to just to to see that and to to show it to people. And they're just, they're completely taken aback and surprised. And so for me, I think when we get to experience the work is yes, there is the let me let me see this great work but you know seeing it online or in a book does it know justice because a lot of times the scale of it or the texture of it sometimes there's a three dimensionality to it there's details of it that you might not get or maybe it's a bad photograph um and you can just really appreciate it in the space when you're seeing it at different different uh distances right yep um and I, and I always I always found that that really really valuable but then also look at it in the context of hey this was at one one time modern art and so what did that mean right and so to try to think about it as something that was created in present day and 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 what context that adds to the work or the fact that this particular piece we see it everywhere and we're very familiar with it but no one had seen anything like it then and it just completely changed the world because it was so radically different you know and I think I think having that contextual appreciation is is really, really important whenever you look at this stuff. So when I started to do the Rembrandt work or when I started to do the painterly work, it was about trying to kind of understand where that motivation came from. And if I'm going to do these modern twists on it with little anachronistic elements or whatever, that I could play in that world because they were also playing in that world. Like when you look at the work of Caravaggio, you know, the, the, the Baroque painter, um, you know, you see that work and it all just looks old. But when you actually look at like, let's say the calling of, of, of St. Matthew, uh, they're all kind of dressed like Italians in the, the, you know, the, the 15th, 16th century. They, despite the fact that it's meant to be around, you know, uh, 1500 years prior, and so we just go, oh, that's all old. But they were actually looking at pieces of work 
where the characters were all dressed looking like them. Yes. I just think that's a, that's a, that's a totally, it's a, it's a missing perspective. I think a lot of times when we look at, when we look at work. Caravaggio was one hell of a rock star back then too. <laughs> he, he was, he was such a, uh, an interesting, an interesting figure. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's what I, what I love talking about with him is the more, you know, about him, the more layers it adds to, uh, how you view the work. Cause the work was very, very religious and he was very celebrated by the church, but he was not a good person. He was, no. <laughs> a, he was a bad dude and did a lot of bad things. Now, contextually, the other part of it is that the only historian we have uh, that was that was of his time that wrote about him and and gave us all of these stories and gave us all of these details hated him. They were massive rivals and would like paint. They basically would paint pictures that were just jabs at each other. Yes. Um. This particular guy, I, it was um not Castiglione, but it was it was it was a name like Baglioni, I think was his name. I, I can't um, remember the name. But he uh. He he was like, oh, what Caravaggio did is nothing special. And then like he painted a picture because I think Caravaggio had painted a Cupid. And then he painted a picture where like Cupid is getting uh, like stabbed <laughs> and he painted it in Caravaggio style to say, hey, what he does is not hard. Look, see, I can do it, too. And it became his most famous painting. And I think he was always bitter about that. It is. Yeah, that that world just fascinates me. Uh, it's it, It's so interesting. There's a great podcast called History on Fire uh, that did a great, uh, great multi-podcast series on Caravaggio. I don't know. Oh, if really? I'm, I'm going to listen to it. That's 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 a good recommendation. Daniele Bellelli. He is. Uh, uh, he's an. I think he's a. He, he's a professor. I don't know if it's art history, uh, but he's also a martial artist. He's. Uh, he he he's an interesting fellow uh, unto himself uh yeah. but yeah his, his podcast is really good um uh, i i would definitely recommend it and i'll check that out yeah, yeah that, sounds, that sounds great uh so how as you you know dug into the the, the old art history how much of that did you incorporate that into your regular portrait photography because it seems like just looking from your port uh, from your your portfolio that the the that lighting uh style has made it into some of your uh a lot of your celeb- celebrity portrait work uh, Alec Baldwin a great one of Bruce Willis uh, a- a- and others just that very very noticeable play with light and shadow it, it is it is very striking and very cool. Um, well, thank you. I think I think what what always spoke to me, um, and I think part of this is is you know when one of the things that I love in photography, like in the in the technical realm of things, is light. I love the idea of like painting with light, and it's almost like this this thing that most people don't see. In it in a, in a physical way, right? Like we we obviously have the impact of light, but like the the, the ability to 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 see and understand how light moves through space, to be able to paint with light, because Rembrandt could paint with light, not just like a painter, but like could paint like Caravaggio could could paint with light, right? Yeah. And I love the idea of light 
as not just a technical necessity, which obviously we need it for exposure, but light as uh, a paintbrush or light as um, a narrative device, something that could help you tell your story, something that could help you create emotion. And I think one of the things that I responded to with a Rembrandt whose work was described as, um, I always liked the, the, the analogy. It was like, it looks like his subjects are lit uh, with the glow from a furnace. Yep. Which I, I always like that analogy or Caravaggio would, would literally use divine light. It was, it was, it was the heavenly light that was telling, telling you where to look in the image. It was, Hey, here's the allegorical story. And here is the spotlight from the heaven telling you that this is important. Right. Yeah. And so it was no longer just a necessity or something that you didn't think anything about, but it was actually directly involved in not the mechanics of the image, but the 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 intent, the story, the purpose of the image. And I liked being able to utilize that. And I think whenever you look at some of the great cinematographers, a lot of those, a lot of those cinematographers, you'll hear them described as like, oh man, this, this, they, they, they paint with light, right? And I think they there's a shared a shared sensibility between the Caravaggio idea of narrative light and and honestly like what a lot of cinematographers do nowadays, where you're giving a physicality to light, which is something that we inherently do. Um, what cinematographers inherently do, whether they're they're adding a haze machine to the to the space or they're adding uh, blooming filters, like they want to give physicality to light. Right. And and let it direct the eye, let it create presence, let it create lines and shape in the image. And so it's a way that we can add extra layers of depth impact and 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 direct the eye uh, through the image. And so I think it's it was a natural progression to take the ingredient of 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 narrative light and move it into other places and just find ways that light could interact in a much more specific way. And it was just something that I was always, I was always really, really excited by. Uh, there was a, a photographer named Greg Heisler, Gregory Heisler, who's who's a master portrait photographer, and really, really thoughtful on photography. And he had kind of broken it down and said that photographers have, you know, there are different tiers to how they work, and as you start to get better and better you develop your own way of doing things like a, like a very stylized personalized approach to light and that's that's excellent and you can develop your thing and you can become very successful doing your thing but above that is something called the subject driven light where not only are you able to kind of do your thing but you can also create light that is unique to who or what you are photographing and it's a different thing and it's a it's kind of that final that final tier of 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 crafting light and i i always really loved and tried to aspire to that that idea where it's never about hey here's my formula and let me go out and set my formula up but it's like what's a what's appropriate what's the best showcase of what i'm looking at right now and how do i make stuff that looks the best or the most interesting for the work that I'm doing right now. Yeah. 
and that makes sense because everybody's going to be different. Uh, th- this one particular person is going to exude, you know, one 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 type of. Uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? One person will look good in this particular light. One person will look yeah. good in this particular light. Their attitude, their their persona can change the the way that lighting is oh, of uh, course yeah there's a, there's a million different factors yeah yeah it's, and and wow i mean your <laughs> your work is just just gushing with th- this this incredible technique i mean i i could see that you're, you're using similar techniques on uh different people and just what that does to the individual it's so dramatically different. It tells a different story. And I mean, it, it is amazing. It is, uh, I mean, <laughs> I could, I could look at this for, for, I mean, I've already been looking at your work for days and like it, more and more I'm, I'm seeing, uh, you, you know, something new that pops out and, and just the, the level of, uh, depth in each portrait is is just incredible even though you, you might be doing something simple just you have this great storytelling eye in each individual still and like and, and at this point i'm all out of words dude <laughs> no, good night everybody <laughs> because it, it again uh words don't uh Words can't compare to it, like how how awesome this the this stuff is. And oh, that's, I, that's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, I I think I think a big part of it is just you know when I when I was first starting out, I thought that what made somebody a good photographer is being able to be a good technical photographer and being able to do a lot of different sort a lot of different things really well. And okay, well here's this light, and I can recreate this, and, and here's this style of light, and I can do this. And, you know, in, in the early days as a learning experience, I got really good at imitating people because you could, you know, I could, I could, I could reverse engineer most things. Right. Yeah. And eventually it took me a really, really long time to come to terms with this, but being a good technical photographer doesn't make you a good photographer, makes you a competent photographer. And at the level of images that I wanted to, to work at and at the clients that I wanted to have, you being able to be a technical photographer, like a technically competent photographer, is a given. That that's expected of you. That's nothing special. So what is it that's that that makes anybody unique? And it's well, it's what you choose to put in front of the camera, or what you choose to photograph, or the manner in which you see the world. And so for me, I like movies. I like I like pop culture. I like the entertainment world. And so I wanted to make movies that felt like they were kind of stills from a film or uh, adjacent you know from from a film they felt like like um key art for for stuff uh because i like those things that feel story driven that feel narrative um but we also have a few luxuries in the photographic world where we get to use certain tools and we don't have to adhere to certain things that they do and so it was about trying to find ways that i could make those sorts of images uh with photographic tools so that they could kind of fit into like like a bridge in between and and 
and try to make the work that I wanted to get hired for. And I think that's a really that's a really key part of it. It's like, oh, well, I want to shoot key art for 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 you know for in the entertainment industry, and like that's the kind of stuff that I'm very excited to make and I really enjoy making. Well, you have to go proof of concept it. You have to create work that looks like stuff that people would hire you to do. And and when you're doing it on your own, you get to be in full creative charge of it. And, you know, people want to see what happens when you are in charge. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Chris, we could keep going and going. I, I have <laughs> yet to scratch the surface on some uh your 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 origin story in, in into photography and, and so forth. I would love to bring you back for a part two, just to go into uh, some of your earlier work, as well as maybe geek out even more on uh, some uh, movie talk. Because oh, of course, anytime. I love to ramble about that. <laughs> totally. Why do you, uh, in the meantime? Why do you tell the world where they can find you on the web? Well, of course, uh, you can find me on my website, chrisknightphoto.com, C-H-R-I-S-K-N-I-G-H-T-P-H-O-T-O. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram, chrisknightphoto as well. Those are the easiest ways to find me. I highly recommend everybody go check out his work. And of course, do your uh, a search for uh, his videos that you can find on the Fujifilm website the 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 cinematic anamorphic uh, videos also an amazing collection of videos to watch to get ideas of your own and yeah chris man it's been awesome having you and uh man i can't wait for part two <laughs> it's been a lot of fun to be here thank you so much for having me mark it was uh it was really great i'll be back for round two whenever you want to have me Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope to see you back next week. I wanted to also mention one more time that this is brought to you by Fuji Love Magazine. For the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm X-Series and GFX, head on over to fujilove.com. Subscribe today. And my name is Mark Sadowski. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter. Mostly Instagram, though. I'm at Mark Sadowski. That's Mark with a C. And you can also check out my other podcast, Xmark. It's a Fujifilm-esque kind of show, where it's more spice of life and pretty infrequent. But if you want more of my voice, that's the place to check it out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.